So we're going to look at some of the things that the prophets spoke about regarding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the first time. And we can't really appreciate the return of the Lord Jesus the second time until we fully understand why he came the first time. So we are going to be looking at some verses that are familiar, yes. I mean, we look at these verses almost every Christmas, even throughout the year. But I do want you to consider something as we look at these familiar verses, as we look at the scriptures together. And what that is, which I was quite encouraged by, actually. I was, I was feeling a bit discouraged this week. And as I studied the word, God really stirred my heart because the, the detail, the, the thought, the consideration, the planning, everything that God set in place that culminates in the birth of Jesus Christ is absolutely amazing. If we can grasp just the sheer immensity of the task that God went or undertook to redeem you. If we can understand the fullness of that, I think we'd just be encouraged that not only does he have his hand on the redemptive plan of humanity, but he has his hand on my very life, regardless of the situation and the context that we might be in. So let's open in a word of prayer, and then let's look at the scriptures together, and prayerfully, I won't go any longer than 40 minutes. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word reveals to us Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that your redemptive plan is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that our salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And I pray now as we look at your word, as we look at your redemptive plan, as we look at how you worked out our salvation, that we would not only see you, but just fall more in love with you. Thank you so much that you are sovereign and involved in every aspect of our lives. And we ask for you to reveal yourself to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are told in the scriptures, we're told in the scriptures that humanity in line with God's intended design was created for one specific thing. He was created for relationship. And in that relationship, we would glorify God. In that relationship, we would know him. In that relationship, we would experience the fullness of what life is supposed to be. We would have relationship with God. We would have relationship with creation. And we would have relationship with each other. I mean, if you have a look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we read how the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a help meet for him. Now, if you recall, God made everything after their kind. So he made the canine kind with all its little subspecies. Made the feline kind with all its little subspecies. He made everything to be created after its kind. And while it says here that man was alone, that is in the sense that man had no one in the same kind as him. He wasn't lonely. You have to understand that. He wasn't lonely. He had creation around him, and he had fellowship with God the Father, but he, was, he wasn't lonely. He was alone. There was no one else after his kind. And so what's really fascinating is this. 
Adam, or the man, didn't identify his aloneness. God did. God identified the fact that he was alone. He didn't know. He didn't know any better. He didn't know anything else. He just knew the joy of being with his heavenly father, and he knew the joy of being around creation, so he didn't recognize his aloneness. God had to make that known to him. God identified the aloneness of man, and thus woman was created. And in the very good that God had made, in the very good that God had given the man, he says, I will call her woman because she was taken from me, the bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, how they are this unified being before God, seen as one, which is a wonderful, wonderful gift. It was in that union that the downfall of man came. Now, I'm not blaming anyone. The Bible says it clearly. That the woman sinned first. Okay, anyway, that's, that's out of the way. Okay, anyway. Okay, but, but okay, so, so in the very good that God had made, both man and woman, we read of their downfall. Now, their downfall was caused not because God didn't provide, not because God didn't give everything that they needed to live. Their downfall was caused because they wanted more. They were given a lie and they believed the lie. They were tempted to be like God, and they said, I want that. And then you read of all the consequences that, took, that takes place because of their sin. Starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, we read how when they discovered after they sinned at the end of chapter 2, God enters the picture, and God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, if you remember at the end of chapter 2, it says that the man and the woman were both naked and they were, uh, they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. And I always remember my mentor, Amon, was sharing with me the beauty of that verse. The nakedness was not shameful because their eyes were not on each other. Their eyes were upon God. That's why nakedness wasn't shameful. They were consumed with their heavenly father. They were consumed with the position that God had given them. So when they sin, what do they do? They hide themselves from each other, and they seek to hide themselves from God. So that's why in verse, um, in verse 11, that's why God asks, who told you that you were naked? And then you have this blame game, this blame game. Adam says, it was, it was the woman you gave me, Lord. Eve, it was the serpent. And then we have the consequences of man and woman seeking to live without God. And this is all discovered here. So to the serpent, God says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And then this one here, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, I'm not, look, I'm, I'm not trying to sit there and, and put females against males, males against females, all that sort of stuff. But you have this now desire that that women when it says have a desire for the husband, will desire to rule over them. 
will desire to have authority, will desire to take prominence in God's plan, in God's design. Okay, in other words, a woman wants to, to usurp God's intended design for something to work. That's why now this is happening. This is the consequence of sin. Then you read to Adam, he said this. Oh, I didn't put the man. Okay, if you look at the man in verses 17 to 19 of Genesis chapter 3, it says, Because you have listened to your wife, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. Speaking of sweat, I'm just going to get my sweat towel. Excuse me. I always, I always got to carry this. I'm starting to. I like to say that the lights are bright, but it's just because I'm old. Anyway, so now you have this consequence as well. What I find fascinating is that that mentality, when Eve ate of the fruit, Adam was there. He watched his wife. He didn't take responsibility. He didn't, he didn't actually sit there and step in when he should have. And the consequence of that attitude continues. So now what happens? Work is hard. Effort has to be put into things. Toil, thorns, thistles, obstacles, problems. These are all consequences of man trying to live apart from God. And as bad as this was, as harmful to themselves and to all creation, this disobedience, this selfishness resulted in the worst, the worst of all of these things. The consequence that they experienced was now separation from their heavenly father. The breaking of relationship. For those of you who are married, you know when things aren't right. When something goes wrong, you've said something, you haven't done something, you, you made a, a flippant comment and in your marriage and you see between your husband and your wife that the relationship is just, it's not right. It's not right. And it's like, did I do something wrong? This is that. You don't realize something's broken until you experience that. Now Adam and Eve who experienced intimacy, experienced closeness, now have it taken from them. Imagine the despair. Imagine the hopelessness. Imagine like paradise literally is lost and fellowship is gone. And all Adam and Eve have to hold on to is this promise made in verse 15 about Eve's offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we have God reiterating this hope over and over again through his prophets, and not in just some roundabout way, not just in some vague symbolism alone, but rather with a definitive details to direct someone, sorry, sorry, to direct people to someone, to direct the people who are now lost with direction, to give people that are experiencing hopelessness some sort of hope, a real saviour, a real rescuer, a real redeemer. For example, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, God gave some of his prophets, a prophet by the name of Isaiah and a prophet by the name of Micah, some specific details. Not just like throwing at a dartboard and hoping, specific details regarding the coming of this Redeemer. 
They speak to the way the Redeemer would come. They speak to the who the Redeemer will be. They speak to what the Redeemer will come from, what his family line is, and where the Redeemer will be born. That's pretty amazing. Apparently, I looked at, I Googled some things. Apparently, one prophecy, example, that last one, where the Redeemer will be born, for that prophecy to be fulfilled, apparently is one in 300,000. Uh, I looked at some other statistics. For eight, eight, eight prophecies regarding Jesus' birth, for that to happen, those eight apparently is one in 10 to the power of 17. I don't know what that number is, but it's pretty big. So we have this, Isaiah, who was around roughly 700 years before Jesus was born, pointed to the way the deliverer would come. That's found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. In this one verse, we are told who his mother is, a virgin who would miraculously conceive and bring forth a child to be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And that one title and that one name reveals the heart of God for you. He is a God that desires to be with you. A A God that desires to invite you to be with him. Being a God of relationship who now knows that relationship being lost when Adam and Eve sinned, desires to deal with the very obstacles that prevent you and I from experiencing friendship with him. How amazing is that? That the God of creation wants to be friends with you. And he says, I'll tell you what, this is the best way it's going to be dealt with. I will come down to you. You stand no hope. You stand no hope of trying to make yourself acceptable to God. You stand no hope of being pleasing to God. You you stand no hope of, of dealing with your issues to come into my presence. So he says, I will come to you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the love someone would have to overcome some huge obstacles so you could know how much you are loved? How much he wants to be friends with you. That God with us speaks to the very heart that he has for us. His desire to be with his people. Jeremiah 31 verse 33b says this, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I love this. I love this. And we all know this. He says, I will be your God. I will be your God, and you will be my son. You will be my daughter. You will be my people. This is what God says about you. And it's not just once. At the 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, we're talking about how we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with you. And walk among you. I will be your God. And you will be my son. My daughter. You'll be my child. My people. Can you grasp that? Even in our disobedience. Even in our failures. Even in our weaknesses. He says, I will be 
yours, and you will be mine. Right up until the end of time, Revelation 21, verse 7. I love this. When he says that I will be your God and you will be my children. Not people, children. Was that 1 John 3, 1? Behold what manner of love has been bestowed upon you that you should be called a child of God. That is huge. The God of creation in his love, in his holiness, in his perfection, also in his mercy and in his grace, gives us hope by promising not only humanity in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but us now in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer to enable us to be with him. That's what it means. God with us. And not only does he speak to the way Jesus would arrive through a virgin, but then points to who Jesus is. The greatness of his person, Emmanuel, is one name, yes. Then you have these names of Jesus in chapter 9, verse 6, which says, For to us, A child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. I know people read that together as a wonderful counselor. I like doing it separately because each of them holds their own unique beauty in it. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you look how each aspect, Greg Laurie talks about this. I shared this many, many years ago during a Christmas message, no doubt. But this theme where he looks at each of these titles and he says how being wonderful to address life's dullness, the dullness of what life is, how we get so caught up in things and like our our marriages can can get dull, Our, our friendships can get dull. Our our jobs can get dull. Our life can get dull, yes. But in the perpetual novelty who is Jesus Christ, dullness can never be fulfilled because in the person of Christ, he is full of wonder. He takes your breath away. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5 in the ESV, look among the nations and see Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That's God speaking to his prophet. He's saying, look, I'm doing something that you, that'll just blow your mind. I'll do something that'll just wipe you out, that'll just sweep you away, that'll just capture your heart, that'll just capture your attention. That's the beauty of our wonderful God. Counselor to address life's uncertainties. And we all know this, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That direction, it's why Jesus is called the way. And I always, I really like what um, Adam Ismail shared when he, he said he knew Jesus as the way and he knew Jesus as the truth, but he didn't get to experience Jesus as the life. But the fact is, knowing that Jesus is the way enabled us to at least be going in the right direction. And that as we trust him, but him, he addresses 
life's uncertainties, with the ups and downs. And this is no disrespect to Victoria, but the fact that they voted in Dan Andrews again, I'm like, really? Really? Wow. I'm not, not making fun of my brother Fritz who lives in Melbourne, but I don't think he voted. You should have. But that's the reality of it. But even with the uncertainty of the various leaders that we have, even with the uncertainty of the political state of the world, even with the uncertainty of your own job, the consistent factor is the faithfulness of our God who loves us and is wonderful. Not only that, he's described as mighty God to address life's weaknesses. And and honestly... With all the stuff that we can do and all the stuff that we take pride in ourselves in doing, I mean, look, I was, I, I was telling Nathaniel this, and I've told some of you this, like I'm, I'm 51 years old now and I'm the strongest I've ever been. But I tell you what, all, for all the strength that I have, for all the, for all the push-ups I can do, for the, for the amount of weight that I can bench press, does nothing to benefit someone in coming to know Jesus. Does nothing to take away sin. It, it, it does nothing to renew a person's soul. It does nothing to give hope to a person who experienced weakness in their life. It does nothing. But I tell you what I can do is I can direct you to the one who is strong. I can direct you to the one who is mighty. I can direct you to the one who stands above each of your circumstances and each of your situations, whether it's illness, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, I can direct you to him who is mighty and let his might step into your situation. Let his being take control. Let his authority have rule. That's what I can do. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. And you all know this, because he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Then we have these last two. The everlasting Father to address life's acceptance. Now, life as it continues with all of its uncertainties, yes, with all of its problems, yes, but our God lasts, outlasts all of them. The the fact that he says that we can go to him if we labor and are heavy laden and he'll give us rest, that we take his yoke upon us and learn from him for he is gentle and lowly in heart and we will find rest for our souls. I I didn't actually put verse 30 up there, but it says, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I mean, we live in a world today where people are trying to be something they're not in order to be accepted. We live in a world today where you can, you go on your little tickety-tocky things and your, your, your snappy-chatty things and, 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 your, and your tweety-tweeties. I'm an old man, I don't care. I got none, I got none of that stuff. And you go, oh, what's your Insta? What's your Insta? Okay, sorry. Okay, you know, <laughs> I apologize. Anyway, that's, 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 my own, that's my own sin I need to repent from, okay? But you, you, it's, it's living, it's, it's promoting this falseness of life that we look at and think, I mustn't be doing things right. 
Or I, I, I must, and, and, and the burden you feel is the burden of your own self-expectation not measuring up to what somebody else says. I remember there's a, a gentleman by the name of Mike Rowe who used to do a show called Dirty Jobs. Uh, he's a Christian guy, conservative, very nice. And somebody sent him one of those tweety tweet things about I've lost all respect for this guy because he did this, whatever. And he, he replied and said, I think, I think you misunderstand that I would care about the opinion of someone that I will never meet. And I was just like, wow. But, you know, I thought, I, thought, I thought that was really interesting. But why look for acceptance for people in a world that doesn't exist, in a world that's online? Why look for acceptance for other people? Okay, somebody said to me, what's the worst thing for you to happen, Joe? What's, what's the worst thing in your life? As a pastor who asked me this, if you think about your life, what would be the worst thing for you to happen? And I said to him, bro, honestly, I think the worst thing for me to happen would have for me to lose the respect of my wife and my kids, that would be the worst. And he's like, really? And I says, yeah, honestly, because the only people I really care about and what they think of me is my wife and kids. That's the most important. I want to be accepted by her. I want to be accepted by my kids. And there's no disrespect to you. No disrespect. I mean, I love you guys. No disrespect to you. I love you guys. But if Brad one day says, goes, I don't like you, Joe. Yeah, I don't care. You go kill your bull on your farm and live out in the bush. Okay, that, that, you go do that, Brad. Okay. That, I mean, that, I mean look, do, I, do I care? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do care, but not as, much as, yeah, not as much as what my wife or my kids think. Because honestly, I have to give an account to God for how I cared for her and how I cared for my kids. I have to give an account to how I cared for you, yes, as well. But I mean, I think it was D.L. Moody who said that. That's our primary thing first. We give an account for our wives and our children. Because the family was instituted before the church, and then we must, we have to, we have to then, okay, how then, how then do I care? So, yeah, so honestly, don't, don't look for the acceptance of, of, of strangers outside of your family. Look for the acceptance of, of your loved ones. Look for the acceptance and know that in your everlasting Father, you are, you are accepted in Christ. And in that acceptance, display that acceptance to others. But don't be governed by what this world determines as being right and wrong, rather by who Jesus Christ is. And lastly, the Prince of Peace, to address life's turmoil. And honestly, the life, it's getting crazy when you look around. You look at politics today, and you think, man, that's crazy. You look at society today, man, that's crazy. You look at schools today, man, that is crazy. For those who are teachers, I now know that Kerry is not a teacher, even though I, call, I, I did that, but I know, where's Carrie? Hey, Carrie. She's a qualified teacher, but I, I know, like with Eva, I, somebody asked me, what, what do you think after COVID? How do you think things are? And honestly, the kids that, that did online school for those two years during COVID, they, they, they don't know anything how to, how, in regards, just how to respond to authority, how to, how to conduct themselves in school. They're, they're really quite, for want of a better word, bratty. They're really quite bratty. And it's really fascinating seeing, like, even so, even those two years, the turmoil that happened during that, the turmoil that's caused, which we're still feeling the consequences from now. And yet, even with all of that, Jesus promises us this. John 14, 27. That's why you don't look for peace in what other people think. You don't look for peace in the job that you have. You don't look for peace in the various circumstances you encounter. You find peace with Jesus because he says, peace I leave with you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. The world gives something on conditions. 
You do this, and I'll give you that. You go here, and I'll go there. That's what it is. Jesus says, no, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. You see, dullness, uncertainty, weakness, acceptance, turmoil, these are all things that we encounter in life, contexts that we all face and that we are in need of saving from or deliverance through. But, but the coming that Isaiah, that Isaiah speaks of here isn't just for us to have a safer life or to be redeemed from the circumstances or the rigors of life. No, the ultimate purpose for Jesus' coming is so that you and I would be redeemed from the consequences of sin, that we will be redeemed from hell and death that would be redeemed from the system of, and the standards of this world. That's what he's come to redeem us for. That's why he is wonderful. That's why he is counselor. That's why he is mighty, mighty father. That's why he is, oh, sorry, everlasting father. And why, that's why he's the prince of peace. I've got that one mixed with God, uh, mighty God. But that's why he says in Luke 19.10 that he said that the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That is who he is. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is wonderful. He is counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting father. He is prince of peace. That's what Isaiah spoke about 700 years before Jesus came to give us hope. Hope for our situation. Hope for our circumstances. Thirdly, Isaiah even goes this. He prophesies regarding what family Jesus belongs to. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Jesse is the father of David, the shepherd king, who had a heart after God's own, and he was willing to trust God, whether taking on wild animals that threatened his sheep, whether taking on a giant that mocked his God, whether, whether being chased by a fallen king that sought his life. And even in his own failure, he still repented of that failure and was willing to take the consequences of that failure as well. That, I mean, was it? we read this in Acts chapter 13, 22 and 23. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God had brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now remember, this is 700 years before to a nation that is in, well, basically being condemned for their lack of obedience to God. They were in a situation that needed hope. They were in a situation that they needed deliverance. And so, G, so, G, sorry, so Isaiah speaks of this deliverer. Not just to deliver the nation from their physical context, but to deliver all mankind from their spiritual depravity, from their spiritual condemnation. Thus, through Isaiah, we told of the way the Redeemer would come, who the Redeemer would be, what earthly family the Redeemer would come from, and lastly, through the prophet Micah, where the Redeemer would be born. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler of Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Like I said, this was the one that was a one in 300,000 if it came about. I remember a person asked, why, 
Why did they make mention specifically Bethlehem Ephrathah? Apparently, there was another Bethlehem, another Bethlehem that's actually north in, in northern Israel. And so the fact that, they, that God in his providence identified specifically which Bethlehem it would be, I mean, that's immense. That's huge. The specificity of being named is specifically by God is to give his people hope when it comes to pass. These prophets of old share the word given to them by God for the purpose of hope, comfort, and confidence. That over the span, is that my last slide? Ah, there we go. Thank you. That over the span of centuries before Christ's birth, God revealed his plans through his prophets. That over the span of two millennia after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, his plan of redemption is still taking place. One heart, one life, one person at a time. And it's something that you and I get to be a part of. You and I get to play a role in. Now, if every detail can be set in motion from the very heart of God regarding his birth, every detail can still be set in motion by his sovereign hand for yours and my benefit. That's what I want you to get a grasp of. If you can grasp the fact that he took care of so many details. I mean, look, these are just four, like five, four, Four, four prophecies, I can't count. Four prophecies regarding the birth of Jesus out of, I think, 300 and something, which have all come to pass. That's amazing. That's amazing. If, if eight prophecies is one in 10 to the power of 17, how do you think he sees your life? How do you think he views your circumstance? How do you think he involves himself in your situation? That's massive. If, if a sparrow will fall to the ground and he knows about it, and he knows you, and he knows every hair on your head, what makes you think he won't involve himself in your life? What makes you think he doesn't have control in your situation? We looked at the blessing of suffering last week. What makes you think he does not know your suffering and is able, he is able to work on your, heart, your behalf to get you through that suffering? He knows that's the blessing of this. He works to his timetable in your life as well. What is, what's the old line? God is never in a rush, but he is always on time. He is never in a rush, but he is always on time. That's why when you read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, but when the set time had fully come. Hold on to that. The set time time. God had appointed a time for something to take place within this plan of redemption. There is a time that God has appointed in each of your lives as well, where he will interact, where he will intervene, where he will intercede on your behalf. So when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So, when we look at our lives in the bigger context of what God is doing, though we may not fully understand, though we might not fully be aware, I would encourage you 
including myself, to trust. To trust him, to trust his plan to save his people from sin and death, to trust his plan that he would work and reveal himself strong on our behalf. See, God used the prophets to give hope to his people. They said God would send the Messiah born into the world, born as a baby, to live the perfect life people failed to live and die a guilty, brutal death that we deserve to die. It was Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's the same for us now. He is the same God today as he is in the days of the prophets. And the example that I want you to take hold of if you've got your Bibles, you probably know the story, but in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 7, I'm not going to read it. Jesus says to his disciples, go into the city, go into the city, and you'll see a colt that no one's ever ridden tied up. Go take the colt, and if somebody comes out and asks you, what are you doing with that? Say, the Lord has need of it, and then he'll let you go and bring it back. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that, how the, the, the foresight of Jesus Christ, the, the wisdom of God in this situation, that these guys then go into a city. You know what happens? They walk into the city, they look around, and they see a donkey there that has never been ridden, a colt that never been ridden before. They think, oh, just as Jesus said. They walk up to go take it. As they're taking it, a guy comes out just as Jesus said and asks them, what are you doing? Just as Jesus said. And they say, the master has need of it. Just as Jesus said. What does the guy say? Off you go. Just as Jesus said. The promises that he's given us as children is so that we can walk faithfully. The apprehension that they may have felt would have slowly dwindled away as everything Jesus said started to come to pass. You know, when you do something, you're like, oh, wow, and you're like apprehensive. Oh, I, do I do this? Do it? And then it starts to happen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Then you walk away in confidence. Oh, look at that. Look at that. And that's what happens. And so when we look at the Word of God, when we look at what Jesus has said, we are in like manner to take it as His Word, step out by faith and obedience to His Word, and then watch what He says come to pass. Well, it may not be the specifics. It might not be like how Peter, when Jesus said, go get this fish, reach into its mouth and take out a coin to pay the tax. It may not be something as specific as that, but it might be step out by faith and he'll provide all your need according to his riches and glory. Maybe that'll come to pass. Maybe it might be the words when you go to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know and then the spirit gives you the words to say because you've been put in that situation. Maybe that'll come to pass but you're not going to be able to experience the fullness of what Jesus has said if you never step out. If you never... Okay, but one last thing to close with, okay? Like Andrew here. Andrew here. Andrew stepped out after praying and seeking God regarding his his lovely wife, regarding he he would have sought advice, he would have prayed and said, okay, Lord, I want to seek you in this. And you know what he ended up doing? He stepped out by faith and he said... I like you. I don't know what he says. I don't know what he said. Okay. But, but he would never have known if he didn't step out by faith to honor God and what he was doing. And he never got to experience God's grace and God's mercy and God's love. And she said, yes, I like you too. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. 
I'm sorry, Cherry. I've only just met her and I've made fun of her like three times already. I apologize, sister. But see, this is the reality of it. This is the reality of it, okay? If he has got all of this stuff in control, if he knows, if he knows the, the, the who and the, and the what and, and, and the way and the where things happen in relation to his redemptive plan, he knows the who and the way and the what and the where in your life as well. That's what I want you to take away. Because his heart is revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, that you and I have the privilege to know. And so take those promises. Take the things that God, take what Jesus has said at his word, step out and see what he does. That's the blessing that we have today. As we listen to what the prophet said, may we continue to hear what God says to us through his word today. So with that, and I'd just like to publicly apologize to Andrew and Cherry. I apologize for that as well. So I'd like to be upstanding. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. We won't close in the song. We'll close in a word of prayer, and then we'll continue to, to seek God and bless each other in fellowship this afternoon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that the way you specifically detailed every aspect of the Lord Jesus coming into this world, the, the way, the, the who, the, the, the what, and the where of his very existence. I mean, four things, four prophecies, Lord, of, of your redemptive plan that we get to partake of. Thank you for showing how you organized everything, how you set everything out. You planned according to your heart, to your love for your people, to your goodness, and place a way where we might come to know you. And with that knowledge, Lord, I pray you will help us to know that too, that you are directly involved in each of our situations, in the depression we may be feeling, in the illness we might be experiencing, in the breakdowns of relationships we may be going through. You also uh, have your hand in each of those things as well. So I pray you will help us to see you through it all, regardless of the situations, that you are God, that you are in control, and that you love us. So we ask for you to dismiss us now and thank you so much for the privilege it is to be called your child. So now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or imagine according to the power that works in us. Unto you be glory in the church both now and forever, even to the end of the age.